0: They like to operate on on the the level where there's this kind of elite who know better and, and kind of talk down to the workers and, well, don't worry about it, you guys just carry on and we'll make the decisions for you. And we just utterly disagree with that approach, you know, we just think it's absolutely wrong.
1: Welcome to the VARPA podcast, where we discuss the issues facing allied health professionals. Each episode, we discuss new topics, including wages and working conditions, lifestyle and career structure, enterprise agreements, dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals, Vikings and Shield Maidens, and all progressive causes facing unionists. The VARPA podcast, the podcast of the Victorian allied health professionals.
2: This episode of the VARPA podcast will be discussing the mission statement, which reads as follows. VARPA is a democratic community of allied health professionals. We are a political organisation. We work together to ensure allied health jobs are good jobs and that the care we deliver is the best it can be. We stand for fairness, equality and for an end to discrimination. We understand that social structures have a profound impact on poverty and wealth. We recognise the significance of class consciousness. We strive to end all forms of exploitation. Solidarity makes us strong. We are union. We are VARPA.
3: Welcome to the uh, VARPA podcast. Today's episode is called the Phoenix of Unionism. That's VARPA. This is Rurik here, the uh, Research Officer at VARPA. And with me,
2: we have... Andrew, I'm the Assistant Secretary of VARPA. Uh, Linda, I'm the Lead Organiser of VARPA.
3: And Craig, I'm the Secretary of the Branch. All right, so we thought we might talk about what VARPA stands for.
0: We've got a mission statement, which we've got written down. We have. We've got it out there in T-shirts, bags. We, you know, we, I'm we wearing it that, as we yeah, speak. We it, I've got it in <laughs> my underwear. You know, it's, it's something that's uh, tattooed on our hearts. Um, um. You know, mission statements, people often, they're just, they're just paper thin often, but ours is something we live and die by, and um, it's something we take really seriously. So VARPA, Victorian Allied Health Professionals Association, that is us and I think the key thing, the the underpinning logic is that we are a democratic community of allied health professionals and um That goes to the notion that we are not a service union. We don't, you know, it's not like an insurance uh, or a bank agency, or you know, that kind of thing. When when you join, you join as part of the community and um, you work with your colleagues in allied health to better your wages and your conditions, but also society more broadly. And we can talk about that a bit later. But, um, you know, I think for us, that is the core of what we do, that that we build that community and we work together collectively for one another.
3: So when did the mission statement get adopted?
1: <laughs> but yeah. In the midst of time. it been part of... of it for so long that you sort of feel like I would have said in um, very early in the sort of reborn branches history. Uh, 2014 yeah it's it's kind of
0: it's a logic that we've worked by for a long time and um it was probably yeah 20 i mean so the branch was reforged i guess in late 2012 after the divorce from hsu east and so when when we came to um, sit on the branch committee we brought a very particular uh, view of how the branch should run this really is is the concrete statement of that and um You know it's taken a a while before it distilled down into something that we could say was a mission statement so it probably took a year and a half before we were we were ready to really kind of put it in such a succinct way yeah and Mm. and it was a collective effort you know everyone in the office and on the committee played a role in kind of wording it properly and and making sure it said what we wanted to say well what would you say would be the heart of it what's at the center of this mission statement
2: Oh the democratic community of allied health professionals. Mm -hmm. I think that goes straight to the heart of the the principles under which we we exist.
1: Yeah, everything else flows from that.
3: Okay, so tell me about that. What's why democratic?
0: Well, that's what a trade union is, you know, it's a group of workers who get together and and struggle to improve their life, you know, and and they do so democratically and because they're working, you know, they're working full time, they're they're under a lot of pressure at work, they don't have the time to struggle personally for their industrial rights, etc. So what happens is you say, right, we're going to collectively elect someone who's going to represent us, going to sit on the committee, make all the key decisions for us, and um, that includes employing industrial experts to do do the work in the field you know, it's inherently democratic. It must be, and that's what we do. We don't have fees. Members don't pay fees. They pay contributions. You know, so they it's a contribution, a financial contribution, but it's also a contribution of time and energy and commitment, etc. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not a fee you pay to us for a service in re, in return. No, we we all put money in the hat and do that collectively. You know, everyone who sits in the in the branch in the office does the same. Everyone out in the workplace does the same. We all put money in the hat and we use that collectively.
1: I mean, that flows on to then how we work in the field because, for instance, we don't bargain without members. We don't meet with... HR or management without members because we're not acting for them we're acting with them Uh, in part that's uh, a philosophical and there's a practical element to that as well because they have the clinical knowledge and the operational knowledge that we can't but from our point of view it's their agreement it's their workplace they're vested in that we you know we're we're just facilitating that for them um, with them um, but we don't do it without them Um, you know there would be maybe two meetings that I can think of in seven years that I might have not had a member or a delegate out for some operational reason, but yeah, every day. And and that's a big, HR don't like that
0: at all. No, I mean, there's this kind of elite who know better and and kind of talk down to the workers and, well, don't worry about it. You guys just carry on and we'll make the decisions for you. And we just utterly disagree with that approach. You know, we just think it's absolutely Mm. wrong. And also having those kind of meetings without members there, without delegates there can lead to some really bad, uh, shonky backdoor deals, Mm. you know, and, and it's not so much. Well, I mean, it can be a slippery slope. And. We're very conscious of that and we also know that we're not the experts, it's, it's those people who are out there doing the jobs, they understand what they need best, what their agreements, what work their agreement needs to do for them and so it's vital that they're there, you know, we're not going to you know, make decisions and, and put positions to HR on their part, you know. Yeah. It, it, I like to remind them that it's their fight and cool.
2: that we're there to help them, to organise them but ultimately it's their fight so they need to be engaged and in, in, involved in that fight. So with this kind
3: of boots on the ground approach or grassroots approach, so what are the things which would go along with
0: that? Well, yeah, I mean, the boots on the ground is is a nice way of framing it because, you know, there are two approaches that unions take. And I guess they're framed as a a service approach and an organising approach. And you obviously have to do a bit of both. And that, you know, that kind of polarisation of the two has been a bit of a stupid thing unions have done over many years. But... Broadly speaking, we we do all we can to empower members and to change the culture of the workplace. Now, that can't happen if it's the Fair Work Commission or the federal court making decisions and making rulings for workers, etc. Workers are empowered and culture changes and, and workplace culture changes when the members really uh, understand their political power and their rights and are prepared to stand up for themselves and you know change the way they operate and that's all about boots on the ground they have to do it they have to take their power back for too long workers have eschewed that power and just just handed it over to the commission or or authorities and that's that's not okay we don't do that so you'll find we very rarely go to the the Fair Work Commission you know we like to get outcomes by doing it on the ground by members doing the the hard work and achieving the ends themselves.
2: I like to talk about it as engagement from an education, and from that will hopefully come the empowerment that you're talking about. So I think that's really, you know, fundamental to the whole, the whole process. Hmm.
1: Yeah, we've always had the view that, um, however many wins we had industrially or in terms of bargaining or any other outcomes, if we weren't continually getting a more educated membership then we we weren't actually going forward that that was just short-term gain but no actual long-term gain so yesterday for instance um on one of the as Craig said fairly rare occasions in the commission one of the you know we we're happy with the outcome we got but the other outcome was that you know we had three delegates attend you know they're now much more likely to participate in that process you know we think it's very much their right management again hate that but you know they ideally at some point could go to that without an organizer or because they, you know these processes need to be demystified this is not something magical it's simply an imbalance of power and a management who have more resources um than individual workers can and so yeah when you have groups of workers who say no nah, actually we know how this place runs we run this hospital not you then you know they're much more powerful
0: mm. and somehow workers have been uh convinced that that they have no say in the way things uh, mm. operate within you know in healthcare, but it, you know right across the board in all sorts of industries and the one we see it is it's a 50-50 employee-employer relationship and the hierarchy is just a it's just a fanciful mental construct you know it just it doesn't really exist and and we have to stop being deferential to to some kind of fanciful hierarchy and um, that that relationship needs to change and and the employers hate it they hate you know, they, they just have this visceral and, and very personal, like, claim to, no, we we run this thing. It's like, no, you don't, actually. You sit in your office while the physios out there and the radiographer and, and mm. you know, the radiation therapist they're doing the work. They're making it happen, not you. And they will make the decision, you know, on an equal footing with you. So, and, and that's one thing we do. We retrain these mm. people, you know, and we change the way they they view this this construct, and I think that's a really important part of what we do.
3: We're for, from- for the listeners of this podcast, you weren't <laughs> able to just see Craig as he was describing. Uh, <laughs> he's describing, <laughs> uh, I guess, management's saying, "Oh, well, we run this thing." You know, he's kind of like crouched over like some Game of Thrones villain. <laughs> it's like,
0: we run this thing. I don't think that we will be able to run it. U-
1: unionism th- in Middle-earth.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was the, the mouth of Sauron for about 30 seconds and I just think you know, I was the embodiment of that, um, that creep. Uh, no, no, look, you know.
2: Can I pick you up on that point though? That's very interesting that you just conflated HR with management. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. that's that's the thing that that's a relatively recent phenomenon because when I started winning the workforce HR was there as a representative for the workers, um,
0: <laughs> sorry, sorry, <laughs> um, but they
2: are now pretty much. How a, old are you? <laughs> a, 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 a facilitator of management, and it's mm. and we tend to look at them as, as a management now, as opposed to being. A, um, human resources as they were originally. So. Yeah,
0: and that's well, their role, and it's very overt. You yeah. you toe the line, you do what you're told to. I mean, I've talked to people who have left because they cannot handle, that. you know, they have an ethical framework and they feel that that role breaches their ethical framework mm. and, and they just have to leave. you Oh, know, well, I've right. had
1: more than one HR person in large public hospitals say when they're leaving, I'm leaving for somewhere that um, better matches my values. And mm-hmm. that's that wouldn't have been their picture when they entered the public health system in HR. Um, But it's certainly their position when they're leaving. So So
3: while we're on this, what, what has brought about this shift? Why have we seen HR move from representatives of the staff and so on and making sure that human resources are, you
0: know, looked after to... How long have
1: them. we got? Yeah, this is a big yeah. issue. The, all right,
0: well, this the, the, is even the word, you know, the, the phrase human resources says a lot about the way the worker, you know, you're just another cog, you know. That.
1: But even that, you know, but that's now being dressed up in all these changes. You're actually hard pushed to find an HR department now, you, and if you do, you'll find HR partners, yeah. um, but it's more people and culture. Or as, co- vulture, um, or, as one of our workforce Vulture, or as one of our co workers calls it, people in Vultures sometimes. <laughs> I mean, that's good. Well, but, yeah. but, you know, in a way, because we do have people saying, you know, only last week I would have had a member say to me, um, oh, I thought they were here to help us. But it's really clear that they're just about protecting. The hospital, and I'm like, yep, that's entirely. What there's doing. still a
0: view on the part of the workforce that you know what I'm going to ring HR and find out where I'm at with so and so entitlements. Mm. You know, do I have access to long service leave? Well, you know what, you're asking the wrong people. You yep. know, you you need to talk to your union. You need to talk to your comrades and your colleagues, who who you know are, are there for your interests rather than the interests of the the healthcare network mm. or whatever it may be. You know, and so I guess there's a bit of a hangover there. But just to go back to to your question, Urick, I think we've seen a massive shift in unionism as you know, we went from fifty percent density, so fifty percent of all workers were were part of unions in the seventies. And, you know, around the world we've seen a huge decline. Um, in unionism, and as that's happened, we've seen these shifts happen. You know, the, the cultures have changed, and the workers have had less and less rights, less and less representation, and less and less power. And you know, everything shifts when that starts to happen. You know, and we're now in a position where the unions are, are more necessary than they've ever been, and we ha- we have to move back. We have to move back, and we're striving for that. But you know, we we need some more um assistance in the in the struggle. You know. We we really do. We need a lot more members. There's, what, 45,000 allied health professionals in, in Victoria, you know, and, and we've built the union back. But, you know, we've, we've got a long, long way to go. You know, we, we need to get up to 10, 12, 15, 20,000 members before we really start to have power and, and, you know, to be able to have legislation put in place and, and really make significant changes. Um, that growth, growth in membership... How much of that would you
3: say is a, is a consequence of, of the mission statement? Like, Not the mission statement, obviously, as a thing written down, but the mission statement is something embodied by the union, that it practices day to day and so on.
1: Look, you know, hard to estimate. Um, it, it, I, I, there's obviously a proportion of people who join because they have um, always had, you know, a commitment to unionism, so that's maybe a quarter of people and there's probably a quarter who are joining because they have a particular immediate need or some individual need. But I think most other people join as a result of their involvement. Now, if we didn't run on those democratic principles, if we didn't have those meetings, if we didn't seek their feedback, then this would just be something that's either achieved or not achieved for them. So I think, you know, it needs to be lived. Oh. You know, the people are politicised by action and that action doesn't have to mean that we're flipping cars and having demonstrations. It means that I'm attending a meeting and standing up to my management. You know, that those seemingly simple actions are often very difficult to take because there's a power imbalance, it's a, it's a, an act of defiance, um, and it puts a target on your back potentially. But when people do that collectively, um, then they gain strength from that. And, of course, the more you do it, the less scary it is. Solidarity
0: so, makes us strong, you know, exactly, is, yeah. is the final phrase in our mission statement and yeah. that's absolutely crucial um but i mean i think you know very largely our growth and you know this is right against the trend mm. unions around the country are going backwards in you know huge numbers and we're going forwards very very rapidly and i think that's all about our approach our boots on the ground approach mm. as, as you uh, i think succinctly phrased it so yeah so-
3: I- so there's another thing on the, on the mission statement that I wanted to ask about, which is it says we're a political organisation. And my understanding of that is political in a broader sense than just party political, but political in, in a sense of interested in the kinds of ideas um, and cultures that are shaping the world that allied health professionals work in. So a broader understanding of politics than is sometimes used. Um, is that accurate? Is there something you'd say about that?
2: Absolutely, I think there's. It's very often misunderstood when they, people say the word political. They think party politics, and they don't appreciate that pretty much everything we do is is governed by um, by politics of some some sort. And and it's really important for us to, you know, put that out there. And and again, it gets back to the empowerment of our membership that they understand that. To get what they need. And, and health professionals, to some degree, allied health professionals can be their own worst enemy. They're always putting their patients or their clients ahead of their own their own well-being or their own benefits. And um, that gets preyed upon by employers and by management. Um, and, and we need to... Demonstrate to them that there is there's a, there's a lot more at play here than just that interface between the health professional and the and the the patient, and that there's there's an organisational structure that's overseeing what they're doing, and and that's governed by politics.
1: Mm. And that politics actually actively. Impedes their capacity to deliver for their patients and clients. You know, like, if you're not active in defending those resources, then those resources are being taken away from your patients. You're in the middle of that. Um, but if you think that, that, that anything other than a political act, then... You know, I'm not sure how you would resolve that because it's clearly political. It's clearly about prioritising the use of our community resources for some things over others, and one of those others is patient care. Hmm.
0: You know, I and mean, yeah, I guess it's really important to say it is not. A reference to party political. Mm-hmm. As you've said, it, it's not about party politics at all. It's about politics or or well, more properly, it's about ideology. It's about the framework. It's about the way our economy works. It's about whether we have publicly owned healthcare or privately owned healthcare, mm-hmm. you know, what what the different under, underpinning politics or ideas um, that, that establish these things do and, and how they impact on us and, and how we can change them. And just to understand that Everyone, everyone has political power. You either assure it and let someone else make decisions for you or you actively use it, you know, and, and work together to create a framework in which you can work for your patient's benefit and for yourself and, and make your job a good one you know, in, in a really productive way and not just sit back and say, oh, look, we've got a tight budget. When when there are billions and billions of dollars, you know, Australia is awash with money. You know, there's all, all this talk about how poor we are, but per head of capita, you know, we're pretty much the richest country in the world. Yet, it's so much of the money is sitting in private coffers and, and is not being used for the public good and we need to change that that money cannot sit there in billions and billions of dollars that money has to go to healthcare. you know it has to go to uh, education you know and you know, we could talk about the NDIS here because, you know, the NDIS is a classic example of where the politics went wrong. You know, this, it, it, to me, I think a, a clear analysis of the NDIS is a system that's been put in place, an economic framework uh, on which healthcare is delivered in a very individualised way, in a very neoliberal way. In a way that drives people away from the public system, makes them self uh, they self employ. You know, you'll get a physio and a, and a speechy and a pod, or you know, and an OT, and they'll they'll rent themselves a house and they'll establish a business, and and then they're not paying themselves, you know, super like they need to. That you know, they're working many more hours than than they should be working, and and you, it, it looks enticing, but that framework makes it impossible to unionise people. So, people are out there. You you start to go backwards in terms of your wages and your conditions etc and this is a, a deliberate underpinning element it's the central it's mm. the heart of the ndis and and they're the sort of politics that we you know we're talking about there mm. the
3: interim um it's interesting i've been reading the interim report um from on the royal commission on aged care and one of the things that the interim report emphasizes is that you know there are no individualised, that there really aren't kind of individualised market solutions to a lot of the problems which are in healthcare. And they call the healthcare system, the aged healthcare system, they call it cruel, basically, but, they, but they're they very keen, you know, or very emphatic that that sort of individualised market-driven response might not be able to provide any solutions. But I think we've sort of, one of the things we've established then using this, using the mission statement is that VARPA is a little bit like the Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, it's uh, on a journey. Uh, We're invisible. Is that yeah. what you mean? <laughs> uh, facing up to the saw runs of the world. Um, is there anything on the mission statement you'd like to, that you feel we should talk about? Anything else?
0: I mean, I don't want to dominate the conversation, but I, you know, I will. You know, we strive to end all forms of exploitation. Uh, I think that's really important. We we play a role in, more broadly than than health and workplace in, in issues. You know, we look at uh, society more broadly because we believe one of our responsibilities as uh, elected uh, um, representatives of the workers is to engage in society more broadly, make Australia and Victoria a better place. So. We don't think the torture of refugees is right. We think this is really damaging and this has a negative effect on on our society and that has a flow-on effect. So we take action in that space. We look at uh, issues of of gender inequality and, you know, Andrew, you should have a bit of a chat about this because you've been involved in some of these campaigns. No, I just think it's important to
2: recognise that people say, why is the union getting involved in that Mm -hmm. campaign or or this campaign? Well, they need to realise that that's what we do we and going back to mission statement again we understand that social structures have a profound impact on poverty and wealth and that goes to the heart of it that the social structures have a huge impact and if we don't have some have some say in what's going on there then we're not doing we're not doing our job and we're not representing our members and we're not representing the community and so i think that's you know it's an important part of what unions do and historically they've been unions have played a big part in in social justice campaigns
1: really important in terms of how powerful language is and you know, more and more we hear, you know, about the economy that we live in. We don't live in economies, we live in communities and those communities require not just that we have good jobs and sustainable jobs but that we have good and sustainable communities as well as jobs and that our family members have jobs. They're not in the same industry. It's also just completely anti-collectivist to say, look, I'm going to be in a collective that looks after my job but outside of my little collective, I don't really care about the rest of the collective. It's just inconsistent. It's it's unthinkable that we
0: wouldn't operate You have little in pockets of privilege. Of, and, yeah, and they're going to somehow last. Well, and it I mean, really does. Just...
1: It just perpetuates that privilege. We go, well, our members are tertiary educated professionals and, oh, good, we can look after ourselves. Fantastic. Mm.
2: Yeah, um, It's a competitive environment that's been created under capitalism mm. where it, force, it pits one against the other. Yep. Um, and that's, you know, race to the bottom in terms of um, in the outcomes of the NDIS is another good example of that, when it's in a competitive environment and all it's doing is meaning that it's forcing the conditions and the wages down and, and the outcomes... Uh, are going to be impacted by that.
3: Um, I, just on, on that note, so just thanks to everyone who's been listening to us and we'll come back to many of these issues in the next little while as a, we continue to have our podcasts. And uh, thanks to everyone who contributed. Yeah, thank thanks. Very
2: thanks.